last week, uh, our pastor began to take us through uh, 1 Peter uh, and began to remind us of the theme in 1 Peter uh, of living hope, that Jesus is our living hope. If we go back and we look in verse 3, and I hope you have your Bibles and I hope you're reading along, uh, it said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You know, again, as we see this living faith, um, it is this blessing that God has given us, this privilege that he has given us through faith to know him, to be forgiven of our sins, uh, and to be with him for eternity. But notice it does not stop there. First Peter continues to uh, encourage and remind us that it doesn't stop with just this great gift that we have received. Uh, could you imagine that if it stopped in uh, chapter one, uh, this book would be a whole lot thinner. Uh, it would not be able to talk about the rest of uh, the obligations uh, and, and life where we're called to go with Christ in this world and on to the next. It would only talk about well, you have salvation and so it ends. The Bible doesn't do that. It continues to go on and to uh, point us to living with God and walking through uh, this life in faith with him. Uh, there's an old hymn uh, that I grew up with uh, that because he lives. And some of you right now, you're automatically, it's going through your mind. Uh, but if you think about just a little bit of the stanzas in there, but it goes, uh, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone because I know, ho, ho, uh, he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Today, as we go through uh, the rest of 1 Peter, and starting in 13, I want us to be reminded that what God is calling us is just not to stop, just as our pastor talked about last week and as 1 Peter tells us, we don't just stop if I have salvation but because he lives, how does that change how we live? How does it change how we view our circumstances? How does it begin to transform us that we begin to look more and more like Jesus Christ? Because that is why he saved us to be in relationship and to transform us to look more and more like how he created us and redeemed us from the very beginning. If you have your Bibles again, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And we're going to read through all this right now. So I, I pray that you would just allow God that he would open your ears and your heart and your mind to hear him and his word right now. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times 
for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, as we go back and we break down the scripture, let's go back and look at verse 13 for a moment. It says, therefore, meaning everything that was talked about uh, previously in chapter 1, 3, and forward, everything that was talked about there of a living hope uh, and what it meant to have this inheritance, it tells us this is what you do with that. Now that you have the salvation, now that you have this precious gift given to you uh, by grace through faith, therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, here in this first point, it says, my hope for today must be grounded in my promised future with Jesus. My hope for today must be grounded in my promised future with Jesus. Think about this. If we live only in this moment only for this moment, and we say that we're a Christian, but we're only living in this moment for this moment, how discouraging at times does that seem to be? There are moments where we know Jesus and we understand Jesus and what he said, but the way the circumstances hit us, the way life uh, seems to throw us something that we weren't expecting or that we are dealing with something that we would rather not be in the midst of, regardless of what that is. We have a tendency to lose hope. We have a tendency to go, I believe all this, but is it really making a difference? But see, here the Bible tells us, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, our hope is not found in what it looks like now or how it feels. Our hope is in the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. And he is coming back. He's already victorious, but he will right all the wrongs. He will take care of us. The suffering will end, but we will see him face to face. That is where our hope is. So that when we run into difficult circumstances that are here in the now, we don't view them through that lens. We view them through this. My Jesus is in control and he's coming back. My Jesus loves me. And in the midst of this suffering, as I am placing my faith in him, it begins to show through this trial I trust him and I know he is coming to take care of me and he is coming back. It changes everything when we don't look on how it feels now or what's going on now, but his promised and presence that he is here with us, but that he is coming back one day. Notice it says, preparing your minds for action. Uh, the way that this reads is actually girding up the loins of your mind. Uh, 
At the time this is written, and the, the, the garb that they were wearing, uh, the men would wear stuff that was longer down to the ankles. Uh, but if they were going to need to move quickly, or if they were going to run, or need to be in action or something, they would take that up and hike it up and tie it up so that they would not be encumbered, that wouldn't trip over that. They would have full free movement of what was going on, and they would be able to act, and they'd be able to move. Notice here this living hope that we've been given in Jesus Christ is calling us to act. It's calling us to be prepared for action. It's not to sit there and say, I'm saved and I've arrived. Again, if we only read that, this would be a much shorter book. But why is it bigger? Because it's telling us not only of how we receive salvation, but what to do with it. Because he lives, this is what takes place now. Prepare your minds, gird them up. Don't be encumbered by the different things that can tend to take away from hope and take away from faith and and be able to say, well, what's the point of all this? If Jesus is coming back, I'm prepared for action. I'm prepared to know that he doesn't give me pointless tasks or commands. They are called to follow and be obedient to him. Notice what else it says. Be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. Be mentally in control. Be mentally in control. Again, sober-minded is this. We can look at these things around us and we can be disheartened even to the point of not even doing things that look like Christ. There are some times where we have these moments where we're like, well, if this is the way it is, what's the point and what's the purpose? truth of the matter is that's a lie that has been implanted from the circumstance or from the enemy or from our flesh that it is not being sober-minded to the reality that our hope being set on Jesus and his coming it begins to remind me I'm going to do this because I know that my Lord has died for me he has risen again And I love him and I desire to be obedient, to be pleasing unto him. Even if it makes no other difference in my mind, it feels that way. What I'm going to do, is it going to make a difference? Let me share with you. And we'll we'll see about this more in the scripture. We do things only, only unto be pleasing unto the Lord. If you're doing something and you're hoping, well, if I did this in faith... Surely this will change this circumstance or this will change this person. Sometimes that happens and we're called. But ultimately, everything we do is not meant to change somebody else's life, not meant to change the circumstance. Everything we do is meant to be pleasing to our Lord who will look at us at the very end. Because some circumstances we cannot control. But at the very end, we are able to see Or Jesus and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Again, my hope for today must be grounded in my promised future with Jesus. It gives me the reason for why I'm going to live and act the way that I will. Because I know regardless of what it is, he is coming. He lives with me, but he is coming. And that gives purpose for the reason of this living hope that I have. Again, it goes on and it tells us this, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This second point, 
My actions for living must be grounded in who God is and what he has done for me. Let's read that again. My actions for living must be grounded in who God is and what he has done for me. Here it says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, this is who I used to be without Jesus. I could choose in this moment to live how I wanted, what I wanted, whatever my passions or whatever I felt, or even my um, self-righteous sense of morality. I was going to do what felt good, what made me look good, what put me in a position uh, to where I either appeared to people to look righteous or I felt righteous about myself. I felt good about myself because I was God. And I lived in those former passions doing whatever I wanted. However I wanted, whenever I wanted, it did not matter. I lived in this ignorance. But when I came to know Jesus, and here's what he did for me. As a vile sinner sitting on my own throne, proclaiming that I was ruler and living however I wanted with my sin, Jesus Christ, by his grace, chose instead of striking me dead and being done with me and casting me eternal punishment into hell, by his great love and grace, chose while I was still a sinner to die for me. To die and to pay for all the sins of the world on the cross. To be buried on the third day he rose from the grave. And as the Holy Spirit began to convict me of my sin. And convict you of your sin. If we repented and admitted I shouldn't have been on the throne. That's the wrong place. Lord Jesus, I confess to you that I am wrong. With everything of my actions, my attitude, my sin, I have chosen to rebel and sin against you. God, forgive me. I repent of my ways and my life. I take you as my Savior. You take my sin. You replace it with your righteousness and your presence. And Father, you now are on the throne of my life and you call the shots. You are the one that's going to tell me how to live, where to live, what to think, what to do. And I will follow you. See, when I give up the right to my life and I've become saved by Jesus Christ, not only do I give up the right to sit on the throne, I also give up the right for how I choose that I'm going to live life. He's now going to show me and tell me, and teach me, and convict me. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. See, church, we are going to struggle with sin for the rest of our life, but I think there's something that gets misconstrued. Sometimes we take passages out of the Bible and almost give ourselves permission that we're not going to become more like Christ. We're just going to tell ourselves, well, yes, I got saved and we're all sinners and we're just going to struggle. And so thus, there's never going to be any progress. I'm going to tell you right now. The Bible tells us that we should look more and more like Christ 
even in the midst of this flesh that struggles, we've been given a new nature to follow Christ, to die to sin, to be raised to Christ, to live more and more like Him. It tells us again as I read it, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be conformed. Why would God tell us to do something if we couldn't do it? Why in the world, in the Bible, would He tell us to lead a life of holiness and to become more and more like Him if it wasn't even possible? Either God made a sad commentary to give us false hope to where it's like, nah, I'll tell them that, but they'll never be able to do it. Or the truth of the matter is this. He is calling us and equipping us to be something more, not through our own power, but through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We are called not to conform. It says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Throughout the Old Testament, holiness was thrown out uh, to be able to say, this is what is holy. This is what I deem is holy. You be holy because I am holy. I am your father, your creator, the one that has made you to redeem you, to buy you back. And so I'm calling you to be holy as I am holy. Now we're going to read more about this and understand it. But again, he's not talking about you putting in a better effort. That's not what he's saying. It's not what the Bible's saying. The Bible's not saying give it a better try. The Bible is saying dying to self, drawing closer to Christ and in faith, taking the step out of which he's empowered us to do, God's going to do the work. We are submitting and following him. We are just agreeing with him that, yes, you say it, and so I trust you as I follow you. The holiness in all of our conduct. When I look at what Christ has done upon the cross, his burial and his resurrection, and I recognize that he has given me his righteousness, and that the Holy Spirit lives within me, what excuse do I have to not constantly come more and more towards living for Christ? Again, I didn't say that you were going to be sinless. The Bible doesn't say that. First John says if we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we're liars. But we can't take that verse and say, well, since I have sin, I'll never progress. Because that's not what the Bible's saying. Be holy Continue to conform no longer to who you used to be, but to who you are now in Christ. Conform more and more to Him. As it goes on, this same concept of my actions for living must be grounded in who God is and what He has done for me. It goes on and says this, And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It says, and if you call on him as father, 
the natural tendency is if we call on him as father and we say, oh God, I need you. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, today I want to tell you about what's going on with me. Lord, today I want to praise you for how good you are. The very fact that we are praying and we are calling on him as father necessitates that out of this, what's it say? And if you call on him whose father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We get lost on this idea of fear because we read through the scripture. There's times where the Bible says, you know, fear not. There's times where the Bible says that Jesus is our friend. There's times that we look at all these. And so we, how do we put together this concept? How do we put together a, are we supposed to hunker down and walk around? God's going to zap us. No, that's not at all what the godly fear is. I'll give an example like this. I've been very blessed. Uh, my father uh, loves me. I know my father loves me. He's provided for me and taken care of me. Um, he has been a father that has, again, taken care of me and loved me and cared for me. But knowing that he loves me and cares for me, if I were to come home and decide to torch the house, destroy the car, do it all, not by accident, but intentionally, I could tell you right now um, that I would have a little bit of a fear of how my father would deal with me. Now, I know my father loves me. I know my father cares for me. Would not expect, and I know as we talk about this, there's some of you like, I've never known a father. I, I don't know a father that's genuinely loved me. I understand that. I get that. But get past your experience for a moment, which is hard, and get into what the scripture talks about. The father that we have does love us. He absolutely cares for us. And if we have had, if we have had an earthly father that has cared for us, it helps us to understand this a lot better. But even if you haven't had an earthly father that cares about you, your earthly father is not your heavenly father. And even I have had a good father that loves me, but even he is an imperfect man that is nowhere near like my heavenly father. But I know Getting back to my point, if I were to destroy something on purpose and take advantage and say, ah, he loves me, it doesn't matter, what would your earthly loving father do? Many of y'all know right now, you would not be disowned, you would be loved, but you would have a fear about what's about ready to take place. We are called in this earth to not take God's love for granted, to not take the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for granted, to not take for granted that even though we've been forgiven and the Holy Spirit lives within me and I am covered by the blood and I have, I have this forgiveness, I am not called to take that for granted and not have a holy fear and respect for the Father. See, living in that Living in that, if that action, that godly fear is grounded in who God is and what he has done for me, it makes me look at this life a lot more in what I do, in what I participate, in what I think, in what's taking place. I begin to more and more, is this pleasing to the God who saved me? Those are the questions we ask. Is, is what I am doing right now, 
Did Jesus redeem me so I could think, live like this particular way? And if I live in that godly fear, it doesn't make me cower because I'm afraid I'm going to get struck. It makes me go, I don't want to take advantage of the God who's done everything for me and loves me. It causes us to live in repentance, but in gratefulness that we have a God that doesn't love us conditionally. He loves us unconditionally. And I do not want to take advantage of that love and that grace. Again, he tells us, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Again, my actions for living must be grounded in who God is and what he has done for me. This next part, listen to this. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now again, scriptures have talked to us as we are being sober-minded, preparing for action, grounding it in the future of Christ coming back. We've looked at this idea again of being holy. We've looked at this of living in godly fear. And now it says, having purified your souls, love one another earnestly. We know that we are called to love one another. That is an easy enough thing. If we've grown up in church, that's been taught to us time and time again. Love God, love others. Jesus loves me, this I know. We think about how we are called to love and forgive, and we know that concept. But the reality is, is that this flesh still wants to love people based on how they have loved us. It's just the reality. It's easy to love those people that want to love you, want to uh, be there uh, with you. But when people don't, it tends at times it would seem, maybe not for everybody, but it seems for most of us, That somehow we are shocked when somebody who is a believer treats us in a way that we can say, how in the world would they do this? I don't know why we're shocked because we still are humans with flesh. A flesh that desires to still be on the throne, though we call to repent But if we live in this moment here of what just happened to us, we love as others have loved us, which is not the biblical command nor what Christ did. Think about Jesus. On the cross, as he is being crucified, not only have most of those who love him scattered and abandoned, 
But his enemies are greatly in number. And not only have they crucified, but they are taunting him. And even tempting him to act outside to where he could take vengeance. Jesus could have struck everybody dead in that moment. Could have done it. But in the Garden of Gethsemane and from the very beginning, Jesus only does the will of the Father. In the very beginning of time, God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, have always loved one another. And as Jesus chose to give up His glory and come here, he was still, they were still loving each other. He was not going to take his own way, regardless of what people were doing to him. And thus, Jesus on the cross, instead of blasting the disciples, all the disciples who left, and instead of blasting those that were saying he saved others, let him save himself, Jesus, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Think about that for a moment. What would happen if you choose to love people based on how Christ has loved you and not whether they're ever going to get their act together or not? What would happen if you chose to love those that did not love you, forgive those that betrayed you, and serve those who would never serve you back. Because ultimately, love is not about what they're going to do to return to us. Love is self-sacrificing. It is giving. In fact, I was reading one author, and one author said, desire the highest good for others even at the expense of oneself. Now again, this passage can get abused in certain ways. I'm not telling you to put yourself in a compromising situation to be abused or hurt or harmed. What I'm saying is that when you choose to love somebody, you are loving them because of how Christ loved you, not because of how they treat you. It must be that way because that is who Christ is. And it says with a sincere. See, the idea of this is to love to the fullest with a sense of urgency. We are called to love each other with a sense of urgency. Are you, is there a sense of, ur- when the pandemic hit, was there a sense of urgency to make sure that you had food, to make sure that you had necessities to take care of yourself? For many people, a sense of urgency was, I got to take care of me, I got to take care of me, I got to take care of me. Even some people are like, well, I didn't have a sense of urgency. But you had a sense of urgency as you began to prepare your deep freeze a year ago or your canning, or whatever you did, that there was a sense, I want to make sure and just be prepared that I'm taken care of. 
What would happen if that sense of urgency went into, I've got to love and forgive those people quickly. I've got to make things right quickly. Why? Because Christ forgave me immediately. It's who He is in my life and what He's done for me. How could I ever say what He's done for me, I'm not going to give to someone else? My actions for living must be grounded in who God is and what He has done for me. If it is not, I will look at the situation and I will say, choose not to love them today because they've been a jerk. They've been a jerk for the last year. Don't have to. There's a, there's, what is that? There's a corollary in the Bible that says, love others as, they, you know, love others as Christ has loved you, unless it doesn't exist. We go on to this last point. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, my life should look more and more like Jesus because he has given me everything I need. My life should look more and more like Jesus because he has given me everything I need. What do I mean by that? Listen to what it says right here. And this is what is amazing to me. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable When the farmer goes to sow, when he throws the seed, he is not throwing seed uh, that he expects to just be dead and not do anything. The seed that he throws on the right soil is going to have a growth and a harvest. That is what's going to happen. And that's the reason why it's planted. To throw seed that's not going to do anything is kind of pointless. But it says right here that you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. It also tells us again in 1 Peter 3, where it says that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. See, the very things that the Bible is telling us to do is not by self-effort. It's the very fact that we have been born again. It's not natural. It's impossible for us to do this by self-effort. But it is absolutely, with everything we have, the ability to do it because Christ lives inside of us and has brought life to this dying flesh. This flesh still has a desire to do its own thing, but I have been born again with a new nature. And that new nature has the ability not only to submit, but to thrive in loving and following Jesus Christ. Everything that Peter has said in here is a command in faith to follow the God who loves us and not, I'll try better. That's not Father, forgive me. I repent of my ways, of my actions, of my attitudes. Lord, you have given me new life. And thus, because you are at work within me, I join you in faith and say, Lord, there's somebody here that I don't want to love. There's somebody at work. 
There's somebody in my family. There's somebody in my... Somebody has caused great consternation in my life. And I would just rather write them off. But Lord, you're telling me that I can love, not based on me getting good feelings to come out, but love because you have loved me and you've given me the ability to repent of my feelings and, my, and love them the way that you've loved me. You've given me the ability and the, to be holy. Well, I just am who I am. I can't do any di- If you're in Christ and you call upon the name of the Lord and he calls you to be holy, we can be holy. The only way we're not is if we believe and are not sober-minded, we're not ready to hike up and be ready for action, we're ready to stay in our former ignorance and passions and instead repent that we have a living God that's changed us and loves us. Church, this is the good news because it says this, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever and this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the good news of the gospel. You have been given something of a living hope that's changing us, changing you if you've given your life to Christ. Because He lives, my living hope, I am and can be different because of His death, burial, and resurrection. Do you know Jesus? Are you open to repentance? Are you seeking after Him? Will you pray with me? Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you have given us this huge Bible that at times seems very intimidating to even open and read because of of trying to understand But Father, you loved us so much that you gave us this written word. And Father, you gave us Jesus to come to the word. Lord, that everything that we need is found in what you have done. I pray today for brothers and sisters. Father, may we seek after you as a living hope. Knowing that you're coming back. Knowing that you're going to judge our actions. And Lord, that we do that not within cowering down, but Lord God, within a healthy sense of realizing, Lord, that you have loved us so much that we want to please you. Father, I pray today for brothers and sisters who claim you, but Lord, have made excuses to not live with you or for you. Lord, that you would convict them today by your great love. Lord, that they would repent and chase after you. Father, I pray today for those that do not know you, Father, that they would be convicted today to know that their sin has separated them. Lord Jesus, your death and resurrection can bring them close as they repent of their sins and put you on the throne and follow you. Lord, I pray for all of us, including myself. Lord, again, is making excuses of why not to look more and more like you. Father, do your will within us. Not that we would do things by how it feels or what it looks like, but Lord... We would do everything in faith so that at the very end, as you judge our actions, you would say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We love you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.